Welcome to the Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to a referendum is underway. So join us as we discuss how together we can build a fairer, a more equal and a more prosperous Scotland. Our goal is to ensure that our listeners are informed, that they're encouraged to get involved and will hopefully inspire others to think about the possibilities for Scotland. Because... As our country renews, we need to choose our own future before somebody else chooses it for us. I'm your host, Drew Hendry MP, and first of all, a very happy new year to you all. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll be looking at some of the best bits of Scotland's choice so far. This is a great opportunity to refresh your minds on many of the key arguments for independence as we move forward into 2022, a year in which plans for the referendum will be published. You can find references to the episodes these clips were taken from in the description on your streaming service or indeed at scotlandschoice.scot. So sit back, listen and enjoy. Sticking with the uh, pandemic, um, the fallout, as I've said, you know, not just in terms of mental health, but, you know, in lots of other ways will be disproportionately felt by younger people for a long time uh, to come. Uh, Many of the lifeline payments that are controlled by the UK government are currently based on age. Uh, What plans do you see uh, for the future in an independent Scotland to uh, make this a fairer system? I think, like, first of all, for me and my my own background, like I, I was brought up in care, so mm-hmm. I left care when I was 16 and these benefits didn't do anything for me when I was living in my own yeah. independent house, for example. You couldn't so access think, them, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, couldn't, yeah. I couldn't access them. So they need to be, first of all, expanded so that all young people that need to access our um, welfare services are able to do so. There's not going to be any things play, put in place or any barriers thrown up because of age. Mm-hmm. I think even even things like minimum um, wages, for example, like young people seem to be not not earning a, a fair day's wage. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. in independent Scotland, I think young people who demonstrate a fair day's uh, hard day's work will get a fair day's wage. Mm-hmm. I'm 23 now, and I know young people who are two or three years younger than me and get nowhere near the same yeah. money that I would get for the same job, which I think is. A joke and well, there, in an independent scotland i don't yeah. think something like that will happen well the ysi are advocating for a minimum wage of 10 pounds aren't they for 18 and, and exactly, over yeah, yeah. And, uh, and i think importantly we wage uh, for eight, 16 to 18 apprentices for example uh, having things like wage rises linked to inflation is a kind of really important uh part yeah. of the mix isn't it yeah absolutely i mean we've seen that inflation is about to rise mm-hmm. today that was yeah. on the headlines wasn't it I think oh, yeah 3.2 percent yeah that's not reflected on the way that young people earn so it's again us whilst we're getting the uplift of 20 pound for universal credit the cost of energy is about to rise in october we're also going to have inflation and a national insurance hike like young people are going to just it's a triple whammy and they're going to cut that 20 pound uplift to universal credit as well and currently in the uk Things like sick pay, job seekers allowance, tax credit, housing benefits are all higher if you're over 25, even though, you know, a 24-year-old or an 18-year-old might be doing exactly the same job. In fact, uh, might even be doing more And it also, this is what I'm saying, it doesn't reflect for people that have come from different backgrounds, like working class people or people from care backgrounds who typically tend to move out before they're 25. 
they've got to deal with all of the stuff that being an adult puts on you yeah. whilst not having the additional money because of age exactly. just doesn't make yeah. any sense yeah. to me it's crazy <laughs> and, and you know you can't see any situation where people in scotland would want a system like that no uh, I, absolutely not absolutely yeah, not indeed but it's it's not just wages or social security discrimination that uh, young people face under westminster um but there's also a democratic deficit isn't there you know so for example the uk voting age by westminster is 18 um scotland wales greece norway it's all 16 other countries it's you know lots of other countries at 16 or 17 uh, people recognising that young people have a right to uh, to have a vote. How, how do you see the engagement with young people being uh, fostered better in an independent Scotland? I think that having votes at 16 sets precedent of of yeah. that engagement being fostered better. When I was when I was 16, it was the independence referendum for the first time, and I, like I can't even explain to you what that meant as a 16 year old being able like recognized as an adult that can make that decision mm-hmm. because ultimately it is our futures that are impacted by the, the result of any election of course never mind a referendum any election it's our our futures that are altered the most by that so i think if we enter into an independent scotland already with the age of 16 it sets a precedent for what's going to come in terms of how we want to be viewed as a democratic nation on an international stage that values young people and young people's perspectives and and the um, opinions and beliefs of young people and there's many ways that that could be uh, explored you know we've already got the MSYP scheme there's definitely opportunities for things like Mm -hmm. that to be explored the Scottish Youth Parliament could potentially be grown out somewhere the the opportunities I think are there Mm -hmm. we've already sort of set set the stage by taking away the the limit that the UK government has and saying actually 16 year olds have the capacity to make a decision that will impact their life we can we can make that vote we can go out yeah. and make that democratic right so yeah i think we're already there what can we learn from the taxation systems of the nordic nations and the benefits they bring to those governments who obviously have full fiscal autonomy unlike scotland There's so much that we can learn from our neighbours. The first thing to understand is it's not a monolith. These countries Mm -hmm. all take a slightly different approach to their domestic policy, but also their international affairs and their defence and security arrangements. So some of these countries, for example, are in the European Union, some are not, some are in NATO, some are not, uh, and so on. But we have, uh, as the SNP, for a long time had a very close interest in what our our neighbouring nations are doing and how are they doing it. Why? Because they're all independent Northern European nations and uh, so um, uh, it is clear that they are making policy choices which would be ones that we consider. So a very concrete example of that is Scotland's introduced the baby box, Mm -hmm. a policy that was uh, first introduced uh, in Finland and uh, there are others that have um, policies um, that have influenced thinking in, in, in the SNP and then in the, in the Scottish Government as well. Most of these countries are very similarly sized. So if you look in particular Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland, you're looking at countries who are in the main between five, five and 10 million or so in the case of Sweden. Mm-hmm. And so there are uh, very particular reasons why 
because of scale and geography and proximity, uh, these are countries that we can uh, learn from, and it, they obviously show us what it's what, what it's it's potent, the potential to do. And there may be things that we think, well, that just won't that won't that won't transfer uh, one for one. Um, but there are many things that will, and that's why I've be, always been particularly interested in knowing what is it that our northern European neighbours have been doing, because especially in the lights of social policy, they've been groundbreaking in Europe in mm. terms of the equalities agenda, in terms of making sure women uh, who want to get back in the workforce can. Mm -hmm. that, that is a huge differential between them and us for productivity, which we know is a challenge in Scotland. So that, together with a number of other things, are our policies that, that we, um, we, we can be learning from. Mm -hmm. I would hope in time that there are things that we're doing that they find interesting and, uh, and opportune for them to consider and learn from Scotland. But I suspect it's only with, when we have the full powers of independence that we can truly compare like for like. And, yeah. and in the meantime, I'm very keen to suggest that everybody should be looking closely at, at what goes on in our neighbouring nations to see what they're doing so that we can imagine what is it that an independent Scotland could be like if we chose to follow um, the, the path that our, our neighbouring uh, nations have. And we shouldn't lose sight of also our countries in the West and North, North the Irish Republic and, uh, and Iceland. Um, obviously, different circumstances again, but these are we are in the same we're in the same region, mm -hmm. and in scale terms with Ireland, comparable Iceland, obviously a lot smaller. Um, but there are many things that we can both learn, but then also that we can do together and work well to make sure that we're delivering on on our potential. And a very concrete example of that is we're largely countries that are very energy rich, and in Scotland's case, very renewables energy rich as well. And the big opportunity for us, in addition to producing renewable energy, is how do we get it to places that don't have as much renewable mm -hmm. energy? Uh, and for the likes of Iceland, Faroes, so Denmark, uh, and then on to Scotland and connected to Norway, you can see where there is a route that we're going to have to have uh, the appropriate uh, transmission cables for us to get our bountiful renewable energy to the continental European market. And that's a very concrete area where Scotland needs to be cooperating with our European um, neighbours. We know, of course, that transmission charges in the UK are hugely detrimental um, to energy production in Scotland, and so it's going to be necessary as we move towards and become an independent state that we, we are at the forefront of the technological developments that will make sure that we can, we can get as much of our energy that's produced here to neighbouring nations that will require it, obviously the rest of the UK, uh, that will be requiring to import from Scotland, but also the European continent that will as well. Yeah, but you're talking about uh, renewables there. Of course, in Scotland, we've overachieved despite having one hand tied behind our backs because energy policy is reserved to Westminster. So we've for years and years, we've been using the environmental powers of the Scottish Parliament to push these things ahead. You, you're talking about our Arctic neighbor, neighbours making big strides. And just before we move on from that subject, could, how could an independent Scotland put what we do now and we know about this into good use cooperating with our neighbours? Well, one of the first things that I would want an independent Scotland uh, to do is to establish full diplomatic relations with uh, all of our neighbours and that we would have diplomatic relations in all of our neighbouring nations' capitals and they would be doing the same here. 
and would be opening embassies and 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 that is the, the normal conduit between mm. countries to make sure that one's talking to, to one another at that sort of heightened technical technical and, and diplomatic level and through that you you begin to build the relations between the governments that can help deliver the policies that are required some of what i'm talking about is dependent on technological development uh, so that we can have um, the, the the physical con connectivity um, from the north of the most northern parts of northern Europe to the continental European market. But we're in this really important geographical location, so it will come through us and next to us, and we have to be a part of that. And um, we are significantly further ahead than the rest of the UK is, both in terms of uh, where things are currently now and where our ambition lies. And as you'll know, the fact that Scotland is now almost 100% um, self-sufficient through renewable energy sources alone and we haven't even really begun at scale to produce renewable energy offshore whether that's in wind or tidal and and we haven't even got on to hydrogen uh, mm -hmm. but the the potential that we have as an energy uh, producer it means that we also need to make sure that we are connected as well as we possibly can indeed. be to our potential export markets. Indeed, we're, we're generating around about 97 to just over 100% of our electricity needs here in Scotland, very similar to our Arctic neighbours, um, as you point out. And of course, there is the opportunity to be part of that Nordic grid uh, as well, so that we could move power around uh, more efficiently. Just coming back to uh, what you, you said about you know the technology issues uh, a few seconds ago, and I want to examine that in a second, but before we move on from learning from domestic policy, um, we know that in the UK uh, we lag far behind in terms of pension provision for uh, people. We also lag far behind in social security. Um, in, in your view, how could an independent Scotland look to our Nordic neighbours to see how things could be done better there? First thing we need to do is understand what it is that they do. And there's a learning experience that needs to go on to understand uh, how our Scandinavian neighbours have got to the systems that they have in all other countries and so, not well, all that's the right. same. Denmark, they, for, Denmark, for example, does 90% of your previous wage if you're unemployed. And I think Sweden's on, was it £30 a day? Um, you know, these are radically different to the way the UK treats, you know, the, the impending cuts again in universal credit that are coming forward. These are radically different uh, positions, aren't they? There's there's that and there's, there's other elements of their social uh, policy that go in parallel. For example, as somebody who's relatively recently become a father again and um, had literally two weeks of paternity uh, leave and you compare that if I was Swedish it would be 90 days mm -hmm. and uh, I you know, I just think that that our, our, our northern neighbors are just significantly further down the track when it comes to um, uh, attitudes towards uh, how, how we deal with social policy and uh, yeah, they are significantly better at dealing with issues like uh, unemployment benefit. The, the, you know, the key thing is mm -hmm. that to have as little unemployment as possible Indeed. in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, but if people find themselves in, in a position of being between jobs or for health or other reasons are unable to, to work, should not be uh, near the, um, um, the, the, the poverty line, uh, which is the case for a great many people in this country. As part of the Smith Commission, uh, you know, it was agreed that there'd be a transfer of both powers and assets. Um, but of course, there were some notable exceptions. 
what remained of those economic assets and, and the management were devolved to Scotland. Uh, what does this change mean for Scotland and how will independence impact on that? Well, first of all, let's look at the positive side. Uh, because it's now the Scottish uh, a, a crown estate, we're able to use the profits that are made yeah. to back up communities. But the Crown Estate also had a good reputation for giving long leases to willing farmers on its land. It behaved in a fashion which has led to the opportunities that independence will bring regarding uh, offshore wind and so on. Uh, the Scotland round of uh, applications and bids uh, for development will mean that that money which is gained from these will yes. come into Scotland's communities and that's a huge plus. I was on the Devolution Further Powers Committee that dealt with the Smith Commission and I was also the convener of uh, RACI, the Rural Affairs Climate Change and Environment. We were involved with the issues of the Crown Estate because I started the process back in 2011 of bringing in the Crown Estate representatives to tell us what they'd been doing, despite it not being our responsibility which was great fun because I was asking them things like, why did the Dukes of Sutherland get uh, the right to the foreshore all around their estates? Yeah. So, well, that was before 1951 or whenever it was that the Crown Estate Act currently was set up. But um, in reality, uh, we were unhappy about the fact that there were properties in Scotland which were retained by the mm -hmm. Crown Estate in London particularly mm -hmm. the uh, big uh, complex uh, at Fort Canaird near Edinburgh. Yeah. But it was set up under an English partnership law. Yeah. Uh, and that's part of the problem that we never finally solved. And indeed, uh, the Gibraltar Holdings people that were the other partners yeah. uh, were actually uh, bought out. And I think the Crown Estate in London has sold it on. But so they were actually taking our assets away from us when it could have been money in Scotland's pockets. Well, I remember one of the first jobs I had to do when I was elected in the 2015 Westminster Parliament was discuss this very issue uh, yeah. uh, in, uh, in the House of Commons with uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg opposite uh, intervening on me during that and pointing out that the fact, as you've mentioned, that Fort Canaird, one of the biggest assets on the Crown Estate list, wasn't included, and that 60% of the value of the Crown Estate was actually sold before the transfer of powers, you know, just uh, eliminating Scotland's ability to, to, uh, to make use of that. So, so in some senses, the Westminster government can work very quickly, but only when it suits them, I think. No, absolutely. Yeah. But um, we also you know, have to see the way in which the Crown Estate in Scotland develops, but it's very friendly towards communities. Yeah. But it's still leasing assets like uh, moorings, like for, for yachts and for, for boats. It's leasing pieces of the foreshore. Now, we really ought to have a direct access without paying for that yeah. so that local communities control these things. So that would be a step further. Rob, um, your passion uh, for the opportunities in it, for independence and land reform are self-evident, but I know you've written extensively on the subject. Uh, so you're well-researched on this. What would you say are the three big steps uh, that an independent Scotland needs to make? Well, can I presage it by saying that there are three steps that we need to take in order to do anything. You have to remember 
what has happened. You have to revision what that is. And you have to then reclaim the land to do these things with. That was my motto for my book, Reclaiming Our Land. But um, it comes from uh, educational stuff from uh, uh, and liberation theology in South America and things like that. Now, the Scottish government, it, it, its biggest steps have got to make sure that that land uh, which we need for housing and for placemaking is an absolute priority because on that you build the ability of people to take on work and jobs. If they don't have a home, they can't do so. We can see that at the moment quite simply by people trying to work in places like Skye or even the centre of Edinburgh. They can't rent properties. There are none to rent, to rent for those purposes. So a fundamental thing that has to happen. We prepare for it now. But independence can release that. The second thing is we probably have to deal with the issue about the amount of land that people have, but that's less of a uh, of a target. We need to access the land that people need and therefore use these international covenants yeah. to ensure that that happens. And thirdly, basically putting people in charge of their mm. local area. That is the work we're embarked upon. And I believe with independence, it's the only way that you can build independent thought. If people control their local decisions, they're going to wish to control their national ones. Brexit, as, as we know, was a leading factor for you and, and many others in, in changing your mind. Uh, you, you know, do you, do you believe that's the same for many of those people in 2014 who voted no? Do you think that's quite a common? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. I mean, like I said, it doesn't. It's maybe not the only reason in in people's minds, but it's certainly it's certainly up there, and it, it comes up in the conversations that I have with people. Um, you know, friends and family who, like me, voted no for whatever reason and changed their mind to vote yes. And Brexit is always in that conversation. And it's actually normally the first thing that comes up. And then maybe a few other things come up about how the UK is currently being governed, how since since the 2014 referendum, we've sent a, almost a clean sweep of SNP MPs to Westminster, but it doesn't make an, a jot of difference to the government that we actually get. Um, so, yeah, I think it would be fair to say that Brexit, in most people's minds, is one of the leading reasons for changing and their mind. Do you yeah. think those amongst those people who've really thought about it, like you, since 2014, there's almost a, a roadmap of things that have been done to you, starting with David Cameron on the, the doorsteps of Downing Street that day, you know, leading up to all the different events, the Scotland Act, the... Uh, you know the the fact that none of the amendments were taken from Scottish MPs uh, through to Brexit and other things, the Internal Market Act and so forth. Do you think that, that there is actually a kind of a, a, a process there that you can see where where the, there's just been a, a more and more reasons to to vote yes? Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there because I can't think of I can think of plenty of those reasons and I cannot think of an argument against against uh, them. Mm -hmm. So. You know, like you say, like um, Scottish politicians' amendments being voted down, um, the the EU Withdrawal Act, the Scotland Act, all these power grabbing, mm. trying to centralise power back to Westminster. I can't think of a positive thing that that Westminster has done that only specifically positively affects mm. Scotland. 
And that case um, for the union is far more difficult now than it was in 2014 when yeah. all these promises are being made. Yeah, no, mm. absolutely. Um, and so I think, um, you know, looking ahead to the next referendum in the next couple of years or whenever it is, that they're going to have a much tougher time making these arguments again because they can't make, they'll try to make the same arguments, but they just won't stand up to any sort of scrutiny because mm. people bought it last time and, you know, we believed or some of us believed what was being said and it's mm. just been shown to just be yeah. demonstrably untrue. People will no doubt find your personal story really helpful to listen to how you've been open to uh, changing your mind. Do you think people are more likely to listen and be persuaded by the arguments for an independent Scotland now? Um, I'd say so, yeah. Um, I, I'd say that, like, if, again, following on from the last point, there's more evidence to show that these people can't be trusted with the arguments that they're making now. I'd, be, I'd certainly think that people are much less inclined to trust the people mm -hmm. who will be leading the, the, the campaign against independence. Um, in terms of making a positive case for independence, I think that's absolutely vital. I think people will always listen to a positive campaign. Um, we need to, we do need to reach out to people like me who maybe are just Indeed. a few steps further yeah. back along the path um, and really focus our efforts and engaging with them and seeing what the concerns are because many of the concerns are probably quite similar from 2014. And you can hear more of the best of Scotland's Choice next week. Don't forget you can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot. So thanks for listening. If you can share this podcast, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. I'm Drew Hendry, and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice. Mm -hmm.